Or shall we continue praying? Heavenly Father, please help us to see Jesus. Please help us to trust Jesus. Please help us to love Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Today we start a series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I don't expect to finish this until Easter next year. Uh, We're not going to look uh, at this Gospel every week for the next 62 weeks, but it will be the backbone of the next year. And I have a clear purpose in mind. I want you to know and love Mark's Gospel. And through that, to know and love Jesus more. I want you to be confident you know why Mark wrote this gospel and be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And should anyone ask you to help them read the Bible with them, I want you to be confident enough to say, yes, let's look at the Jesus we meet in Mark's gospel for he is the light of my life. Mark's Gospel is the shortest and in some respects the simplest of the four Gospels. Uh, It's brilliantly put together, but sometimes it looks as if it's just thrown together. This happened, and then immediately this happened, and then this happened. But once you understand what Mark is doing, then wherever you open it up, You will understand where it fits in and what Mark wants you to know about Jesus and what he wants you to do about Jesus. I'm really looking forward to this. It's not my favourite gospel, but it's the one I love teaching the most. Now, before I get started, I should make some brief introductory comments. A gospel isn't like a modern biography. We don't get the detail we see in modern biographies we get what the writer thinks is significant about the person the gospel is about, in this case, Jesus. The biography is about the significant things Jesus did and said and the significance of the most significant person who has ever lived. Jesus has affected the lives of more people than anyone else over the last 2,000 years and done far more good than anyone else. The the word gospel means good news. Often when a gospel was written about a, a Roman general, it meant news about the victories of that general. Here we have Mark's gospel about the victory of Jesus Christ. And three questions immediately come to mind. Who did Jesus fight? How did he win? And what does his victory mean for us? And we'll find answers to those three questions over the next year. Uh, Mark's is the first gospel written about Jesus. Uh, It was probably written between the years 42 and 45. So only 10 or so years after Jesus died, when many of the people who had seen Jesus knew Jesus had seen him and and could verify what Mark had written was true. Uh, Since the days of the early church, it's been attributed to a man called John Mark, who travelled with the Apostle Peter. 
It's likely some or most of the stories we see in this gospel were first told by Peter, who lived and travelled with Jesus during the three years of his public ministry. So this uh, very much is a testimony of an eyewitness. Uh, It was written in Greek, the lingua franca of the Eastern Mediterranean at the time. Uh, It was written to Gentiles, non-Jews, quite possibly in Rome. Uh, It doesn't have all the Jewish background and references that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark have. So that's another reason why it's a bit more accessible for us. As it was the first written, both Matthew and Luke draw heavily on the material in Mark for their Gospels. And because John's Gospel was written 15 to 25 years later, he seems to assume a familiarity among his readers with Mark's Gospel. Uh, And John's role was to fill in the gaps and to focus more upon what Jesus meant rather than what he did and said. So, So this Gospel is really important to the other Gospels. Mark has a total focus upon Jesus. Except for two stories about John the Baptist, the total focus is upon Jesus. Mark calls on his readers to set aside what they might have thought and heard about Jesus. For Jesus has new teaching with authority, as we will hear in chapter 1, verse 27. And we are to learn that his new teaching is like new wine being poured into new wineskins. We find that in chapter 2, verse 22. So we are to be like new wineskins, supple and respective, not hard and likely to crack. I think I might think about that the next time I have a glass of wine. I'll be supple and receptive. So if you're ready, if you are supple and receptive, let's dive in. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In Greek, it's just beginning. Beginning of the good news. It it echoes the start of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In Greek, beginning can mean first in time or order or, or origin or source. And because of its link with Genesis, it identifies this gospel with its source in the power and authority of God himself. By referring to the start of creation, Mark is saying, Jesus is as momentous as that. For for in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. This beginning signals the fulfilment of God's everlasting word and the coming of a new age. The beginning of the good news, the the gospel, Uh, the Greek word we translate as gospel is euangelion, from which we get words like evangelism, the telling of the good news. But very unusually, here in Mark's gospel, it is in the singular. It's not various bits of good news about Jesus. It is the good news that is Jesus. There is none other, there's none better. 
And the next word is Jesus. Uh, It's okay. We're not going to go through all 16 chapters word by word. But it's worth going slowly at this start. In Mark, we don't have the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. We have the name Jesus was given at his birth. In Hebrew, Yehoshua, which we anglicise as Joshua. In Greek, it is Jesus, which we anglicise as Jesus. And Jesus means literally God is salvation. Uh, On its own, it might sound like a a pious name that parents have given uh, that praises God and his salvation. But to the name Jesus, Mark adds the title, the Messiah, the Son of God. Not, Not a Messiah, not a child of God. Not a son of God, but Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We'll meet these titles again and as Mark helps us to understand what they actually mean. The title Messiah looks back to the promises a thousand years ago made by God through his prophet Nathan to King David in 2 Samuel 7. That is in the line of David there would be a mighty king who would rule forever. A king who would rule forever. Messiah means anointed one, which in Israel meant king, as kings were anointed with oil after they were crowned with a crown. Just what the first readers of this would have made of the title, the Son of God, uh, we can't be sure. But even at this early stage, of the gospel, it may have signified that there is some of God's divinity in this Jesus. For to be the Son of God means he must be of the same nature as God. We looked at this just before Christmas when we were talking about the Incarnation. Either way, both titles are pregnant with meaning and hope. And very simply, Mark's Gospel is an explanation of how Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. What type of Messiah or King is he and what does it mean for him to be the only Son of God? Now, of course, a a king has a kingdom, uh, not necessarily a geographic area like the Kingdom of Tonga, but a kingly reign. All the miracles and most of the teaching in Mark are about the kingdom of God, of which Jesus is the king. What the kingdom will be like and how Jesus can help us get there. Uh, It's these questions that Mark is addressing time and again in his gospel. What is this saying about the kingdom and its king? They're the questions we can ask ourselves on every page. It's it's almost like the code breaker for Mark's gospel. We next meet John the Baptist, although the quote uh, is an amalgam of Isaiah, Exodus and Malachi, Mark attributes it to Isaiah as Isaiah was the preeminent prophet whose authority was greater than the other two and who spoke more about the suffering servant who we identify with Jesus. 
He spoke more about that than any other prophet, so it's worthwhile mentioning him. Uh, And we saw that in our first reading. The desert in Jewish history was seen as a place of preparation. And it's there that John prepared the way for the greater one to follow. The description of John has echoes of the prophet Elijah, weird clothes and weird diet. And the significance is that Elijah prefigured not the Messiah, but God himself. John applies the, pra- uh, the phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, to indicate this greater one to follow was not only the Messiah, but the Lord God himself. So Mark is already showing us what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. He is divine and stands in continuity with the work of God in the life of Israel. Look back to the promises made in Isaiah and you'll see them fulfilled in Jesus. His dress also, uh, John's dress also indicates that he's an outsider and not to be associated with the insiders who we'll soon see, who occupied and controlled the temple in Jerusalem. But we'll see Jesus identifying himself with outsiders uh, and that's a recurrent theme throughout the gospel. And that's good for us, at least those of us who don't feel that we ever really belong anywhere. Uh, It's a great comfort. And you'll find great comfort in this gospel. We're told John came preaching a baptism of repentance. He preached in the desert, a place that in Israel history had a place not just of preparation, but also of repentance and God's grace, as in the exodus from Egypt under Moses. It is in the desert or wilderness that God delivers his people, and therefore we should expect the greater one, the one who's coming, to have a greater deliverance. A new and better exodus leading to an even better kingdom Israel could look forward to a land of milk and honey. We can look forward to our places in the kingdom of God. So can you see the way that John is just building our expectations of what we will find in his gospel? John preached a a baptism of repentance, a ritual cleansing that signified the acceptance of covenantal relationship with God, the washing being a way of symbolising the moral and spiritual transformation necessary for covenant relationship with God. Something that's there for us as well. Here repentance has exactly the meaning we give it. It's not so much saying sorry, but changing one's mind and then taking willful acts to follow God. It's, It's a rational decision to put sin behind them and to positively follow God in word and action and commitment. John's humility and subordination in relation to this greater one to come is captured in the compelling image of being unworthy to even perform the act of a slave to untie sandals. And this does two things. First, it speaks of the significance of Jesus 
relative to John. And second, it hints at what will be expected of us if we want to follow Jesus. We'll see next week in the calling of the first disciples that Mark works at a number of levels, not just telling us things about the start of Jesus' ministry, but also inviting us to consider how we are going to respond. Uh, Would we be prepared to untie the sandals of Jesus? Verse 8. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, In Jewish scripture, our Old Testament, God alone bestows his spirit. It's not for anyone else to do. It's just God has control over his spirit and it is for him to give that. So Mark is again saying that Jesus has the divine power and authority of God. Uh, if, If Jesus can bestow the Holy Spirit, he must be divine. He must be God. That's the way it works. And with this greater one, will come the dawning of a new exodus. This is a a new movement away from slavery. This time slavery to sin and being made holy, a a sanctification that only God could bring. But that's what Jesus had come to do. He'd come to make us holy and acceptable to God. Mark starts Jesus' earthly ministry with his baptism by John. And and Matthew and Luke refer to the same event, but mention only the, the heavens opened. But Mark is more dramatic. The heavens were torn apart. And we'll meet that idea again, um, but only right at the end, in chapter 15, with the tearing apart of the curtain in the temple, both symbolising God himself tearing his clothes and anguish at mourning at the death of his son, and in the new direct access we have to God because of the victory of Jesus. There's no longer a curtain between this God and his people. Jesus would now be the way to God with no need for priestly intermediaries. And with this, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. It could be pigeon, but I think we'd prefer it to be a dove. Uh, It was commonly believed at this time in Jewish history that the Holy Spirit had stopped speaking to God's people. There were still some writings but none with the divine authority of the major and minor prophets. But now the Spirit had appeared again, like a dove. God would speak again, this time through Jesus. Uh, This was not some uh, symbolic spiritual awakening in Jesus, but a supernatural occurrence that is an empirical reality. Jesus was in every way filled with the Spirit of God, to be God, uh, to be God with us, and to share that Spirit. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Uh, We'll meet this voice again in the Transfiguration in chapter 9. 
and there's a lot in this. Despite the extraordinary event it is itself. Can you imagine being there? With the heavens being torn apart, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, and then the Father God himself speaking. We had an amazing storm during the week, but just imagine if part of that storm, all the, all the clouds were pulled apart and the voice from heaven came down. That's what it, would, what it, that's what it was. But this is not myth. Uh, This is history from eyewitness accounts. It's almost too much for us to comprehend. These words seem to echo echo Isaiah 49.3 from our first reading. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendour. Like the servant, Jesus would fulfil God's purposes and would be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But more than that is the concept of sonship. In the Exodus, when Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Israel was called to sonship with God. They had an inheritance with God as father. Now Israel, the whole nation of Israel, is all reduced to one person. It's concentrated in one person. All the hopes of Israel are concentrated in one person, one son. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. For this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who had the mightiest victory of all time. The baptism is in a sense a key to the life of Jesus as Mark tells it. Jesus is given the power and authority of God through the Holy Spirit and enabled by his heavenly Father to speak and act for God, as he will on a number of times in the coming chapters. He will forgive sin, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, reclaim the Sabbath, challenge the religious elite, and do much more as the Messiah, Son of God. And no one can stop him until he chooses to lay down his life. With uh, typical Mark and brevity, we then see Jesus tested by Satan in the wilderness. He is driven out to face the great adversary. Not another God. And the danger in his creation did not crush him. He was with but not killed by the wild animals and angels attended him as a vindication of Jesus' resistance to all temptation. While we give in to temptation, he would become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And after this, Jesus went into Galilee. Most of his ministry would be conducted in the area of northern Israel. Only towards the end does Mark have Jesus ominously moving towards Jerusalem where the final battle would be fought? And to close today, we have Mark's magisterial description of the good news of God. That the time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
Uh, and as I have said on the many times that I've quoted this, as it's a very significant passage, this is Mark's summary of Jesus' teaching. Mark actually records very little of Jesus' teaching compared to the other Gospels. He's far more concerned with the man and less concerned with his message because Christianity is about a person, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and if you don't know what Jesus means to you, you have to ask yourself if you are a Christian. And if you don't know what Jesus means to you, or you don't actually think he means that much, it's just part of the background to coming to church or being a Christian. If you don't really know Jesus, then this gospel and this series is going to really help you. So you're in the right place today and keep coming for the rest of the year and I promise you, you'll be able to say what Jesus means to you and you will be totally confident in your faith. As we finish, oh sorry, no, back just a bit. In this statement, it's more than a summary of Jesus' teaching. For what is the kingdom of God like? And, and how do we enter it? These are the questions this poses, this statement poses. And we'll see how Mark answers them. And I'll leave it to you to see if, like me, you stand in amazement at Mark's skill and awe and wonder at this Jesus, the Messiah, this Son of God, with whom you can trust, with whom you can have a relationship, with whom you know loves you and calls you to love him. As we finish, let's not miss that Jesus said sometime about the year 30 that the kingdom of God was near, was not far away. In fact, we'll see its official start in the account of what happened in Jerusalem in three years' time when Jesus went up against Satan and death and all God's adversaries one last time and died for the sins of the world and was raised to complete victory for eternity in his resurrection. And that is Jesus' victory. That is the victory that we get to share in. And that's what lies ahead. It's a wonderful journey. It will bring you unimaginable joy and hope and wonder and all you can possibly want and more. For this is the good news that is Jesus. Amen.